0: Welcome to the Aerospace Engineering Podcast. My name is Reiner Groh, Research Fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering, and on this podcast I have conversations with aerospace pioneers about new technologies at the cutting edge of aerospace design and research. If you enjoy the Aerospace Engineering Podcast, then there are a number of ways you can support it. You can leave a review on Apple iTunes, or wherever else you listen to this podcast, you can share it on social media with your friends and family, or you can support it directly on Patreon where patrons of this podcast receive exclusive behind-the-scenes content and special episodes. Thanks for your support. This episode of the Aerospace Engineering Podcast is brought to you by KDC Resource. Are you currently looking to fill a vacancy and will settle for no less than the best engineering talent? Then look no further. KDC Resource are the experts in engineering recruitment for the aerospace and defense sector. For more than 15 years, KDC has been matching the very best engineers with the biggest names in the industry. From Airbus Group and GKN and Aerospace to Cobham and BAE Systems, plus a whole host of smaller companies working on very hard engineering problems. KDC's deep talent pool of aerospace engineers means they are perfectly poised to meet your particular needs with the ideal candidate. In a time of unprecedented engineering skills shortage, KDC Resource will give you an edge over your competitors in the recruitment market. To find out how KDC Resource can help you hire the best engineering talent, visit kdcresource.com forward slash podcast. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Three,
1: two, one, zero, all engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Lift off on Apollo 11. Slipping, uh Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed.
0: Today I'm talking to Dr. Priyanka Dopade. Priyanka received her PhD from the University of New South Wales in Canberra, Australia, and was the recipient of the Zonta Amelia Earhart Fellowship Award, awarded annually to the 35 Most Outstanding Female Aerospace PhD Students Worldwide. Since 2013, she has been researching the thermodynamics of jet engines in the Osney Thermofluids Institute at Oxford University. Priyanka is an expert in computational fluid dynamics modeling of heat transfer, aerodynamics, and air elasticity in jet engines. She is currently leading the modeling campaigns for various projects in collaboration with industry partners Relating to turbine and compressor tip clearance control, turbine internal cooling, and active flow control. In this episode, Priyanka and I talk about the challenges of improving the efficiency of current gas turbines, the intricacies of fluid dynamics modeling, and a topic particularly close to her heart the diversity challenge in STEM fields. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Priyanka Dopade. Priyanka, We're here at Oxford University, and I'm super excited to be speaking to you today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Okay, so you are currently a postdoc at Oxford University, and you're doing research into the optimization of jet engines. But before we get into the the nuts nuts and bolts of your research, I'd like you to tell our listeners a bit about your research, what you did before you came to Oxford University.
1: Um, so my name is Priyanka, and I'm from Canada, so I started my engineering studies there, did my undergraduate at Ryerson University in Toronto, um, and I've worked in uh, various uh, aerospace companies based around Toronto, and that's where I got really um, interested in jet engines because I worked at Pratt & Whitney Canada, one of the biggest manufacturers of uh, jet engines in in the Toronto area in Canada. Um But I wasn't really getting to do the work that I wanted to do, and I knew I wanted to go back to school. So I decided to uh, pursue postgraduate studies, a master's by coursework in aerospace engineering, but I also wanted to travel. So I decided, I just picked Australia. Great place. Ended up in Melbourne at Monash University, finished my one-year coursework master's, Learned lots of new things, but that's where I actually was introduced to the idea of research because I had never done it before and I had no idea what was involved. I uh, did a small research project just on fundamentals of fluid, fluid dynamics. Um, and although my initial plan was to always go back to Toronto and work in industry, after I'd done a bit of research, I was sort of hooked. Mm-hmm. And that's when I decided to stay in Australia and do a PhD because I liked Australia as well. Yeah. So I ended up in Canberra at UNSW Canberra, working on an exciting project uh, funded by the Department of Defense, looking at some fatigue problems uh, for the Joint Strike Fighter engine. Um, So I finished my PhD there, uh, took roughly three and a half to four years. uh, And at the end of that, although I knew I wanted to stay in research and in the jet engine uh, sort of thermodynamics field, And my supervisor didn't have the funding to keep me on, but he suggested Oxford. So the Oxford Thermofluids Institute based here at the Department of Engineering Science is one of the best places to do heat transfer research in the gas turbine turbine field. Uh, So I applied um, and got the job. And so I've been here since 2013. I started as a postdoc, but last year I was promoted to senior research associate. Um, so that involves a bit more teaching and more independent research. And I'm really enjoying it.
0: Yeah. I mean, we've just had a walk around and Oxford is a very, you know, it's got a great heritage. Yeah. One of the oldest universities in the world. And to be able to do research here, it must be yeah, absolutely incredible because it's a very unique place. Um, so yeah, you were talking about the different uh, fields of, of, of uh, turbine turbine engines, so I mean they're used for lots of different, different things, they're used in the energy industry, for electricity, um, and you said that you worked on, I guess in, in a military set setting, so probably on turbojets rather than the turbofan engines that you would use uh, on a commercial uh, airliner, is that the case?
1: Well, I think a lot of modern um, fighter aircraft actually use turbofans, but they're low-bypass turbofans, so they have a better better maneuverability and a better weight to thrust ratio because they have to be lighter in order mm-hmm. to be more maneuverable so they are low bypass turbofans and the fundamentals are all the same they just have a smaller fan at the front
0: okay so yeah so we talked to mention the fundamentals let's get into the fundamentals of jet engines so We've all seen jet engines when we take a flight, you know, around the world. They're on, on they're hanging from from the wings. We've we've all seen them. But how does a jet engine actually work? And specifically, what are the the four main um, cycles of, of a jet engine?
1: Yeah. So the jet engine is actually a really clever invention. It's based on the. Joule cycle, or the Brayton cycle, and it's essentially converting energy from one form into another, so it's converting the energy stored in the fuel into kinetic energy, which provides thrust based on Newton's third law.
0: Which is, I guess, action and reaction.
1: Yes, every reaction as an equal and opposite reaction. So basically what you're doing is uh, you start with a compressor, or the fan, the low, low pressure fan. Uh, and then the high-pressure compressor, which is essentially squeezing the air, increasing the pressure, lowering the speed of the air, and then that air is then uh, ignited with the fuel uh, in the combustor, Mm. uh, which then produces uh, a bang, so the air blows through the turbine uh, and out the back through the nozzle, and that's what generates the thrust using Newton's third law.
0: And I guess you probably also need the turbine to some degree. Does that also then maybe spin the compressor at the front? Exactly.
1: So that's the innovative thing about the the gas turbine cycle is that the turbine is essentially powering the the fan at the front with a common shaft.
0: Yeah. And so we we talked about or we mentioned a turbojet and a turbofan and high bypass and low bypass ratios. So... I mean, you just described, so you have a compressor, a combustion chamber, a turbine, and a nozzle. And so does the air that flows into the front of the engine always go into the combustion chamber? Or is there a way that perhaps you would have flow also flowing around it and not being combusted?
1: Yeah, so uh, I guess for a turbojet, all of the air that goes into the front passes through the core of the engine, but the turbofan actually uh, quite a lot of the air passes around the bypass section and provides a significant uh, amount of thrust in addition to what's happening in the the core of the engine. Um, And uh, for many reasons, uh, if we want to optimize or maximize the efficiency of the engine, that fan diameter needs to get bigger. So you increase the compression ratio through the compressor and uh, also increase the turbine inlet temperature. So if you want to maximize the thermal efficiency of the joule cycle, that's essentially net work over heat input. So that comes down to increasing that turbine inlet temperature, um, which sounds really simple in theory, but it's obviously limited by the kinds of materials that can withstand these high temperatures, both in the compressor and the the turbine, although the turbine, the high pressure turbine actually sees the highest thermal loads.
0: Okay, so if I understand that correctly, so you have the air that flows through the comp- compressor and you're you're compressing the air down, which then basically allows you to then extract more energy out of it once you spray fuel yeah. in- into that compressed air. Yeah. And then you have the turbine, which to some degree leads into the, the nozzle where the, the air is then flowing out and pro- providing propulsion. Yeah. But it's also spinning the compressor. Yeah. And so in order to make that most efficient, you want the temperature that goes into the turbine to be as high as possible. Exactly. Okay, and then uh, what are the temperatures that kind of that you would have at the at the inlet to the to the turbine?
1: So they can get as high as uh, 2300 degrees Celsius wow. just coming out of the combustor. So the combustor has to be cooled, the turbine, uh, the hot section of the turbine has to be cooled. Uh, in order to operate at those temperatures, and if you look at uh, various components in the high-pressure turbine, for example, the the blades, the melting point of the metal, which tends to be a nickel alloy, uh, is around eleven to thirteen hundred degrees Celsius. Wow! So, so you're
0: operating at twice the melting well, point. Yeah. Well, almost of the, <laughs> almost twice the melting point of the of the metal. Yeah. Okay. And then, what what are some of the traditional means then of of cooling the metal because you obviously don't want it to just start melting that would defy the purpose of the jet engine so how would you how do you actually cool the metal
1: Yeah, this is actually another really clever uh, area of engineering, which is uh, rather than carrying an external coolant on board, for example, that you could use, it's a continuous cooling system, which just uses uh, cooler air. It's not even cold air from the very front of the engine. It's slightly cooler air coming from the high pressure compressor that is then routed through a series of valves and, and networks um, into the hot section. So for example, the, the shaft is cooled, the disc is cooled, the blades are all cooled internally and externally, and even the casing that goes around the engine has to be cooled because it's operating at, at these high temperatures. Um, so it does get quite challenging, but it's a extremely interesting area of fluid dynamics because it's really exploiting um the inherent sort of turbulence that we see in in high speed air mm-hmm. uh, and high temperature air to um transfer heat between the cold and hot streams of air
0: okay okay so we're getting closer and closer to your main focus of research now so just to just to put a summary on that that turbine cooling so you have uh, air coming from the front of the compressor and I guess you can feed that through little channels in your engine maybe right. through the through the main shaft to then almost, you, you not spray it out but the air flows out through the, the turbine blades and yeah. then it provides this film cooling almost yeah. around the, yeah. the, so the turbine, engine, uh, turbine blades.
1: Exactly. So there's film cooling and there's also internal cooling so there's a series of these serpentine passages inside the blade. Um, which are uh, sort of punctuated with pedestals and ribs that are there to enhance the level of turbulence, which enhances the level of mixing between the cooler air and the hot air that's being seen by the blades. And once that air has gone all the way through these uh, channels, then it comes out of the holes which are drilled uh, onto the surface of the blade. And it basically forms a protective film of cooler air. Uh, When I say cooler, uh, it's still around 600 degrees C. Wow. (laughs) Um, But it's still, that's enough of a temperature gradient to actually keep the blade at sensible temperatures way below its melting point. Um, because uh, obviously the, the metal loses its strength much before it actually melts, which is still just as bad.
0: Yeah, so that's basically creep, where under yeah. high temperatures, if you have constant load, exactly, it will just continue to deform more and more, kind of like if you hang a weight from a plastic bottle, even though it doesn't seem to be doing a lot, at some point the plastic will break. Exactly. Um, yeah. Okay, so you have internal and external cooling, so I guess the morphology on the inside of those blades must be quite intricate be quite difficult to manufacture even
1: it is yeah and uh, that's a um, an area of manufacturing that I don't actually know very much about but I'm still continually amazed by it because they're they're called single crystal blades so they're grown from a single crystal and I wish I could explain how that actually works but it's super complicated and um, engine manufacturers seem to do it with such ease yeah. seemingly anyway
0: yeah yeah I mean the, the picture that I always have in my head is that if you look at a lot of steel that you see you can kind of see the grain boundaries you know yeah. kind of the little boundaries around the little grains and in that case it's just one single grain exactly. it's just one solid block of, of metal without any imperfections that would happen at the boundaries between the grains
1: exactly yeah. yeah so
0: yeah it's absolutely fascinating there's a lot of different aspects of engineering that kind of come together in the jet engine and then that therefore in a lot of ways it's this pinnacle of almost 20th century engineering.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah, because I think we couldn't, I mean, nowadays we can just, you know, almost take for granted that I could just go to London Heathrow and jump on a plane and fly to the United States. And that has pretty much only been made possible because of the invention of uh, the jet engine.
1: Yeah, and the continual uh, advancement of the technology and optimization and maximizing the efficiency, reducing fuel burn, that's actually made it more accessible to everybody. And uh, because of that reason, I mean, air travel is predicted to continue increasing by a ridiculous percentage over the next few decades. And uh, I guess the responsibility is still there for gas turbine engineers to keep pushing the design envelope of these kind of
0: engines. Yeah, it's okay. so you just mentioned efficiency. So um, your research, you're working on the optimization of, of jet engines. And what is the context of this research? Why are, are you doing it? Why are people at Oxford doing it? What is the kind of benefit for society or even the environment of you succeeding in your research?
1: Yeah, so it's all of those things, a combination of all of those uh, motivations. Uh, up till now, well, when air travel was first invented sort of, um, and took off in the 60s, it was really more about going higher and going faster. Uh, but then increasingly, people became aware that uh, aviation was responsible for uh, basically moving moving people and objects around, and it was driving this global economy. So it, that's when it really became more about fuel efficiency and bringing down the fuel burn per passenger uh, so that it could be more affordable. And also recently, um, fuel costs have gone up, so airlines are looking at, you know, a pretty big chunk of their operating costs as fuel, so that motivation is still there. Um, But at the same time, in the last uh, couple of decades, the environmental pressure has been increasing on the aviation industry, so reducing uh, CO2 emissions and NOx emissions, and I think that's one of the big drivers right now that is... um, motivating people to optimize uh, engine efficiency because the the transaction is that one tonne of fuel is equal to roughly three tons of co2 which is quite a big deal and um so if we do nothing uh sort of over the next 25 30 years we're gonna see our co2 emissions continue to increase uh, by a significant amount um And if we sort of uh, do take measures like upgrading all of our current aircraft to the latest technology and perfect our route planning and so on, we can bring it down a little bit. Um, But the additional target that the aviation industry has right now is to basically have their CO2 emissions by 2050 um, uh, compared to 2005 levels. So there's a huge gap there that needs to be bridged in order to meet that target. And I think all of that is going to be done by improving uh, current uh, jet engine models, um, looking at things like biofuels, which I know nothing about, this area of chemical engineering, um, and uh, also looking at step changes in engine technology. So looking at, uh, you know, the gear turbo fan, which is uh, currently in in development.
0: So there's basically a gear ratio between the turbine and the compressor, basically, or the, the fan blade at the, at the front, the first stage of exactly,
1: the compressor. Exactly, yeah. Uh, but I think one of the... So it basically allows you to independently control the speeds of the fan and the turbine. Because at the moment, they're connected with a common shaft, and that restricts you uh, to what speeds you can run the fan. Uh, so in order to optimize the efficiency actually the fan needs to run slower mm-hmm. than the turbine that's driving it so the geared uh, so the gearbox would help you do that but so Pratt & Whitney has done that for some of its smaller engines but the big issue there is with the heat transfer for bigger engines the amount of heat that's going to be dissipated in this gearbox is significant and current technology is not able to do that. So that's one of the challenges that's ongoing. Um, But then also looking at more blue sky concepts like the open rotor concept and blended wing body concept. Uh, These have been in development for the last few decades. And I think they will take another few decades to really come to fruition. So at the moment, the most immediate sort of plan of attack is to look at these so called marginal gains that we can get in the engine. So looking at improving every single part, uh, every single component, every single function that's in the engine. So you improve the stage efficiency of the compressor of the combustor the turbine. uh, And even though you get marginal gains, they actually add up to quite a significant number. Um, And even though you the engine is already quite efficient, Um, Even, for example, a 0.1% increase uh, across every engine, across every fleet uh, across the world can translate to a huge, huge difference.
0: Yeah, especially when you're saying that one ton of fuel is three tons of CO2. Exactly. It adds up.
1: Yeah, definitely adds up. And this is where my cooling research um, has the potential to make an impact because So firstly, the motivation for the cooling is to stop the blades from from fatiguing and from melting so that we can run at higher temperatures, Um, but also uh, improving the methods of cooling. So uh, looking at ways of enhancing the turbulent mixing between the cool and hot streams of air means that we can use less air bleeding out from the high-pressure compressor, and then more of that air can go towards generating thrust. So the cooling system can also impact the efficiency in that way. Mm -hmm. So there's uh, yeah, a few different motivations.
0: Okay, so you basically, because you have to bleed some amount of air out of the compressor to cool, let's say, the turbine, that air can no longer be used as an efficient means of producing thrust. Exactly, and combustion because it's not chamber. passing
1: through the core.
0: Right, and therefore, yeah, so if you can do the cooling more efficiently in the turbine, then you can bleed less air.
1: Exactly. Right.
0: And so one of the ways that you're doing this is with computational fluid dynamics. Now, it kind of says in the title what, what computational fluid dynamics, or CFD as we call it, what it is, but could you kind of summarize what CFD is in a nutshell?
1: Uh, I guess so, Um I think the, the most common use of computational fluid dynamics is solving the Navier-Stokes equation. So those are the governing equations that describe uh, the motion of fluid. Um, uh, and we basically use that to build uh, computer models of various parts inside the engine, looking at one part in detail. People are also looking at using CFD to... Um, generate full engine model, for example.
0: Um, and then, so in your particular case, when you're using CFD, how are you, how are you using it basically to optimize the 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 efficiency of, of jet engines? Is it mo- mostly towards the, the turbine cooling or are you trying to cool other parts of the engine and is it associated with what you just said before about mixing cooler and hotter streams of, of fluid and doing this in a more efficient way? How how are you using the CFD to do this?
1: Uh, yeah, a combination of those things. Uh, I have done some work on the um, the high-pressure turbine, looking at internal cooling of the blades and modeling those internal passages and seeing the effect that those pedestals and ribs have on the turbulent mixing and how effective they are. Um, but I also do quite a lot of work, CFD work on the um, secondary air system. So this is the system that basically carries that air from the, the cooler air from the high pressure compressor to the hot sections where it's needed. Um, uh, things like um, looking at the, the the casing that goes around the engine. So part of the secondary air system actually delivers cool air to to cool that casing. And that has uh, more than one benefit. So obviously we get to keep the casing at a sensible temperature, but also um, if you look at things like tip leakage, so that's the the area between the edge of the blade and the casing. Um, and that region is quite important because it's there to sort of... Uh, make sure that the blade isn't rubbing against the casing, which can cause fatigue problems. Um, but at the same time, it can't be too big because all of the air that passes through that region is essentially lost. It's not going towards converting energy into another useful form of energy. Mm-hmm. So to controlling that that gap, that tip gap, is actually a huge area of focus in gas turbine research because the kind of marginal gains you can get from optimizing that gap uh, are huge. Um, So one of the ways we can do that is actually by controlling the thermal growth of the metal casing. Uh, So we can uh, modulate it transiently as the engine operating conditions are changing during flight as the altitude is changing. uh, It's quite a big challenge to actually accurately control that control the entire casing because it's not just one big piece, there's sections of the casing that are essentially bolted together for mm-hmm. each stage or each couple of stages. So everything has to kind of move together and it gets very complicated very easily. So the CFD that I do kind of looks at, for example, one of the stages in the turbine and the casing that goes around that. And um, one of the one of the things that I've learned about CFD is... Uh, it can generate some very, very beautiful pictures that are very colorful and nice to look at. And I tend to get quite a polarized um, opinion from people. Some some people think it's, you know, beautiful, amazing, and if the computer is calculated, it must be right. Mm-hmm. And then other people think it's absolutely rubbish, and those people tend to be experimentalists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I found that the best way, the most uh, efficient way to use CFD is in conjunction with experiments because uh, obviously cfd is the ideal world and the kind of boundary conditions to your computer model that you build and the kind of geometries you can mesh and the the, the models that you can use for example to simulate buoyancy or compressibility things like that um, are again idealized Idealized, because they're basically solving the the governing equations other than turbulence which uses various approximations um, suitable to different kind of flow regimes um, it's actually very difficult to generate those same conditions in the real world in an experiment where you have to manufacture things you have to bolt things together you have to instrument it to actually measure what you want to measure and all of those Instrumentation, the the probes have their own limitations as well. Um, But if you use them in conjunction, uh, it can actually tell you a more complete picture of what's happening. The experiments technically are real, but they do tell you a limited amount of information based on the instrumentation that you have and the corrections you have to apply. And you basically really have to understand what you have made um But if you can get that to and validate the computational model uh, and match what you're seeing with some relative error margins, uh, the CFD can actually show you what's going on, the fluid dynamics that's actually happening. And I'm a very visual learner. That's why I've drawn to CFD because you can see the flow patterns, you can see uh, what's actually driving the heat transfer in this case.
0: I think the visualization part, aspect is actually very important because, yeah, I guess in a jet engine there are certain parts of the operating jet engine that are just off limits. How how would you be able to look at what's necessarily going on exactly. in the kind of really hot turbine stages? It, yeah. it's not or it might be possible, but it's probably going, would be very very difficult. And I guess the other aspect is is that yeah, if you're trying to optimize something. We all know optimization is typically multivariable, right? There's lots of different things going on. Yep. Different variables can push your design in seemingly opposing directions. And if you now have to do that in an experiment, which is very expensive to do, because you have to build things. Exactly. You have uncertainty with regards to what you just said in terms of the actual thing that you're building. Do the dimensions, you know, line up the way you thought they did? Yep. Aren't there small imperfections that could perhaps trip a boundary layer from going laminar to turbulent or something like that? Yep. And now if you're trying to optimize that and you need to run it multiple times to find out which variable has which effect, I mean, yeah, doing that experimentally is very, very difficult. And it so, is. yeah, the CFD, you almost you need to have the CFD...
1: To the, support exactly the, the experiments. experiments.
0: They yeah. have to be working together. Yeah. And that's the only way you're going to be able to iterate quickly.
1: Absolutely, to get a better design. And that's the kind of CFD that I'm drawn to and excited by is a very applied CFD that sits alongside the experiments. And I almost work at the interface between the CFD and the experiments because with the CFD, I don't develop any of my own tools. I use what's readily available, but I use it as a tool to actually solve a real problem. And the really exciting thing has been that... Um, some of the research that we demonstrate at uh, the Oxford Thermofluids Institute that works well actually gets taken on by some of our industry partners, and we get to see our research being implemented in the next generation of engines. So that's for me, that's a really satisfying aspect of it. I'm working the very applied side of things, because you can see it it being implemented, yeah. even as a young engineer.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably yeah as as an engineer that's one of the most satisfying like it's very you know for you satisfying to see something that you maybe dreamed up in a lab or in your engineering office and then you got to design it you tested it and then it's now flying i mean the exhilaration of that is incredible
1: absolutely and it's actually already having an impact on the environmental side of things
0: yeah okay so so my my funder my research funder the royal academy of engineering has got started this multi-year campaign called this is engineering And it's in partnership with 11 major engineering organizations. And the the aim of it is to basically change the perception of teenagers 13 to 18 years old about what engineering is and what different engineering roles uh, entail. And so my first question is, what inspired you to become an engineer?
1: Everybody asks me that. And uh, I think for me, I have to say my biggest uh, support was my parents because i think at a very young age loads of children show children are inherently curious they show an interest in science and it's up to the adults around them to sort of nurture that and encourage that and that's exactly what my parents did and my dad's a mechanical engineer so i grew up knowing what engineering was which makes a huge difference and I knew that it was always an option. So when I was growing up, obviously, I was most interested in things that fly. I, w- I wanted to go to space and <laughs> I wanted to work on you know, airplanes and things that fly. So aerospace, something related to that was always on my mind. So I was considering astrophysics or astronomy or something like that. But uh, it was my parents who suggested oh, well, actually with engineering. <laughs> You uh, can do loads of other things as well and it's very hands-on and you can actually see uh, an impact uh, on the real world and you don't have to necessarily get into a space shuttle and go off into Mm -hmm. space. Although I did try that as well. Oh, you did? Nice. (laughs) Yeah, so in 2016 I applied uh, to the Canadian Space Agency to be an astronaut and went through their recruitment process. Uh, which was really exciting um, because it had always been a dream of mine. Um, But even as a child, I was quite realistic about my ambitions. You know, I wanted to be an astronaut, but I thought, well, if that doesn't work out, at least I can work on things that fly. They're going to be sent out into space or around the world. And so aerospace engineering was a natural choice for me. But I recognized the privilege that I had of having parents who were, conscious and and literate in science, and encouraging and knew where the options were, and also teachers who encouraged my uh, enthusiasm for maths and science, and uh, and sort of instilled this self-reliance, self-motivation in me, you know, And, and I think that makes a huge difference. And so, when people ask me this, you know they expect some like inspiring story, but actually it is it's not it's very simple as your curiosity as a child has to be fostered by the people around you, and I think it's a real shame that 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 we lose out people at that age because all the research shows that um. Uh, peop- uh kids basically self select themselves out of stem subjects at a very early age girls more so than boys mm-hmm. and it's just really unfortunate
0: yeah so you're basically saying so you were curiosity driven but you also said that your parents you were very fortunate that your parents were well versed in engineering and science and that you knew what engineering was yep. so when you think when you when you look at that self selection Do you think that of of girls versus boys in the STEM fields, do you think that perhaps that we're telling our young kids the wrong story about engineering, that we're not really showing them what engineering is all about and that you from a very early age had that visibility? You know, I know what engineering is like.
1: Absolutely, yeah. It's that, it's um, trying to get away from these outdated stereotypes. You know, when people, if you ask a person on the street, especially in Britain, what an engineer does. It's also a misuse of the word, because people think an engineer is somebody who comes to fix your boiler or fix, you know, do the plumbing. Um, And sure, that's a very applied uh, side of engineering. But at the same time, engineering as a profession is a protected profession. And it's a real Uh, it's a difficult profession that you have to train for and you have to, you know, there's lots of ethics involved with it and it impacts pretty much everything around you. Um, And that's what people don't realize. It's a a proper profession.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, for example, my home country in Germany the en- if you finish an engineering degree at least you used to be able to put the name engineer kind of as as a title so it was very well protected the title of engineer yes and as you as you rightly pointed out in the UK a lot of the times it's very colloquial just to say the engineer is coming to fix exactly. my boiler and of course it has certain aspects of engineering that, that are involved in that yeah. but you, you it kind of doesn't give service to let's say a rocket scientist or something like that that yeah there is a very broad aspect of of engineering and yeah. and that is just one aspect of it um, and then so going back to the kind of the division in the STEM fields what would you say what would you like to see in terms of promoting uh, engineering for for young girls what do you think is a, is a great solution that would go in the right direction
1: I mean everything that the, this is engineering campaign and the year of engineering and the women's engineering society all of the steps that they're taking and the uh, institution of engineering and technology all of the steps they're taking uh, are in the right, are in the right direction. It's sort of diversifying the definition of what engineering is, especially in our modern world where so much of it is digital. Um, all of the kinds of roles for people who are hands-on and want to work with a hard hat, those roles are there, but there's so much more to engineering than than people can see. and And this is engineering is actually showing that. And I know a couple of the the women who are featured on on the website, and I think it's it's fantastic. In terms of what can be improved for girls, so the thing is, I may have a slightly controversial opinion. But the thing is, uh, I do lots of outreach events and give talks to uh, classes of girls, in mixed groups as well. And I understand that some of these groups are self-selecting. You only get to see the students who are interested, who come along to these things or have parents who are interested, who drag them along to these mm-hmm. things. Um, but when people frame the, the issue as saying we need to get more girls interested in science, I don't I don't find that. I think girls the interest is there. The mm-hmm. girls are interested. They're definitely smart, smart enough. I think the national statistics show that girls outperform boys yes, at GCSE correct. levels. Yeah, even at
0: university.
1: Even at university? Um so I think But that's not reflected in the number of girls who take physics post-GCSE. It's not reflected in the number of girls who enroll in science degrees at university. And I think it's the other environments that they're exposed to that actually consciously and subconsciously uh, turn them off. And that's the classroom environment, the home environment, and the media. Mm -hmm. So obviously things like this is engineering is combating that from the side of the media but i think more outreach has to be directed towards parents and teachers because for me my parents and teachers were my motivating motivational factor and i think lots of girls miss out on that and there's a whole host of reasons why it's related to gender stereotypes and and our perception of gender and the way we divide ourselves based on these various categories that don't actually mean much i don't think mm-hmm. So, um, but to get parents to think in a different way, actually, maybe instead of buying a doll, because it starts so young, it starts at the age of two that children become aware of their gender Mm -hmm. and they start to follow these rules based on what they see their parents doing and all the other adults around them doing. So instead of saying, oh, you know, I'm going to buy my little girl a doll, maybe I'll buy her a Lego set right, Yeah, or something like yeah, that. Yeah. And the reverse is true for boys. Mm-hmm. So boys are naturally, because they're naturally assumed to be better at logic mm-hmm. and maths and science, they don't get to uh, learn the other side of things, the communication, the creativity, because engineering is all about creativity. Mm-hmm. We don't want a herd mentality no. where everybody thinks the same way. And what this does is it Um, creates a generation of men who overestimate their abilities, their STEM abilities, and uh, underestimate those of their female colleagues, because there's a recent study that actually proved just that. Um, And that doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help engineering as a field, because we want creative solutions coming from different perspectives. Uh, It doesn't help the women who are currently in STEM, um, because there's a whole host of confidence issues and uh, imposter syndrome and uh, outright bias and discrimination that stops women from succeeding at every level, um, and yeah, it just it just doesn't help.
0: Yeah, I think the the grassroots approach that you out- outlined is probably that's a very powerful idea. I think a lot of the time, what we when we look at these problems, we think that we have to kind of do this top down solution and that there's going to be let's call it a designed or an engineered solution but a lot of the times it's what you just pointed out that you want to make sure that in the early beginnings at the grassroots level that you encourage your offspring basically to even yeah just consider engineering as a degree yeah as a career um, provide them with the with the kind of Play devices that would kind of push them, perhaps, or posture in one... those skills exactly, absolutely. And I think that is, that is uh, almost an underappreciated, perhaps, um, mechanism of, of yeah, increasing the amount of yeah, women in engineering. Yeah,
1: and it's not easy. It's it's really difficult, even if you go into a toy shop, for example. Everything is so divided mm-hmm. into pink and blue, and um, initiatives like let toys be toys. That's a advocating for gender equality in the toy industry. Mm-hmm. Um, look, try to challenge people's perceptions. You know, why, why do you have to buy this? That's colored this way for this gender and not the other way. Yeah. Um, but I think it's also related to a certain level of greed in the toy industry that want to make two of everything just so they can sell twice as much. Yeah.
0: One in blue, one in pink. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
1: So it's making people aware of that and um, it, it's 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 a very lazy way of looking at the world, you know, so you don't have to think, you don't have to get to know somebody. You just stereotype them. Yeah. Based on whatever, their gender, the color of their skin or their socioeconomic class. It's just it, yeah, being in engineering and such a male dominated field has made me think more about these things.
0: Yeah, and I mean, especially in the UK we have a long way to go because currently I think in terms of the European um, working sector. I think it, we're at 10% females in, in engineering or in aerospace engineering, which is, I think we're in last place in the in, in Europe. But yeah, it, it does boil down back to what you just said in terms of questioning our most fondly held assumptions, Exactly, which is actually a fundamental tenant of science that you go back and question your assumptions. And if they're not valid, then you revise them. And then you see how you come up with a new hypothesis and go from there, right? Absolutely. You test. Well, Priyanka, has been absolutely great uh, (laughs) to talk to you today. It's an absolute pleasure. Uh, And thank you very much for having the conversation.
1: Thank you so much for coming to Oxford and interviewing me. It's been really fun.
0: If you want to learn more about Priyanka and her research, then you can find show notes with links to more in-depth material at aerospaceengineeringblog.com forward slash podcast. And if you'd like to personally support the show, then you can do so by subscribing or leaving a review on iTunes, sharing the show with your friends on social media, or becoming a patron on patreon.com forward slash airspace, which will also grant you access to exclusive material. And with that, thank you very much for listening and talk to you next time.